uh, infomercial over. Let's talk about Deuteronomy. Um, anybody know uh, where it is in the Bible? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. All right. I am glad you asked that question. Bill Adams in the room said, where does the word Deuteronomy come from? The prefix Deutero means two or second. And so it's the second law or the second telling. And the key to kind of understanding why that's a thing is actually back in Deuteronomy chapter one. Uh, and there's there's a little bit of a different nuance to the way that this is presented. Um, I'll give you a minute to get to Deuteronomy one because I'll, I'll look at the first few verses. So, you know, when you read about what other people have said about the Bible, not everybody is always in agreement. So when you try to look up when was Deuteronomy written, there are a number of us who are traditionalists who believe that it was written about 1,400 years before Christ. Moses died in 1406, and so we, we sort of take the conservative scholarship view that it's a very old document. Now, I, I get the, the issues that come along with that, right? It's like anything that's written in the Bible. We don't completely understand the mechanics of inspiration. We're not sure how Moses was told what to write down and, and where he wrote it down. I mean, God used tablets. I, we don't know what Moses used. Uh, so... So nobody is sure how it actually got onto papyrus. But those of us who take a conservative approach, we're, we're pretty sure that it's very old. Modern scholarship, often called critical scholarship, has settled on a much later date for Deuteronomy probably somewhere around 600 to 650 BC, uh, because many of the things that are described sound like the exodus, I mean, the exile is what is in view rather than the exodus. And that the writer ascribed the words to Moses because that would have had greater authority in the Jewish readers. Now, with that said, I'm not going to say any more about it because I don't believe it. I don't. I. It's almost like if somebody, my wife accuses me all the time. She says, you can speak with absolute authority about things you know nothing about. <laughs> and, and, and when people who are Bible scholars speak with absolute authority about a theory they have or an opinion they have or a way of looking at things, then somebody quotes them and somebody else quotes them and somebody else quotes them. And before long, there's a, a, a consensus that if this many people are saying it, it must be true. Well, the problem with a later date for Deuteronomy is that most of the evidence for a later date has been generated by these conversations, not by biblical evidence. It's, it's not with internal evidence. It's not with extra biblical sources. It's with people who have repeated the rumor long enough where if, if that guy says it, it must be true. He's really smart. If it's on the internet, it must be true. And so I'm, I'm going to just say, let's rest with a conservative earlier date, and I, and I only brought that up because it's possible that you will see in commentaries uh, uh, they're 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 pretty evenly split 
between conservative scholars who take an earlier view and um, critical scholars who take a later view. Anybody got any questions about that? I, I don't want to get into the weeds of who wrote Moses. If Moses wrote it, the later view, the later view says that someone else wrote it and gave him credit for it in order to uh, bolster the authority of the words. You know, if, if you get a, a memoir from Joe Schmo, you're probably going to Joe Schmo it out the window. But if you get a memo that Joe Schmo wrote and said that George Washington wrote it, then you're going to go, oh, George Washington wrote it. And, and so if the, the, the critical scholars who believe that, that Deuteronomy was written in the uh, 600s, they would say that the writer, anonymous writer, <clears throat> maybe even Josiah, uh, the, the good king of Judah, uh, who instituted all the reforms, including the reading of the word, Ezra reading the word, uh, that that would have been a similar climate to what Moses is writing about in Deuteronomy. So, Skip, I believe you're absolutely right. I believe Moses wrote it, and I believe that he wrote it. I don't know how it got on paper. Obviously, Joshua or someone else did some later editions. How do I know that Moses didn't write all of it? Because it describes his death. Each other. Uh, well said, Byron. Byron asked, who are the critical scholars inspired by? And I said, each other. Um, well, is it possible that they that the words were all memorized the way they memorized so much? And then these guys were... Yes. Nancy asked, is it possible that the, that the words to Deuteronomy were memorized? Uh, yes. But we remember that Moses spent a lot of time early in Egypt. And uh, and the, the Egyptians were quite advanced in their literary, you know, the library at Alexandria is supposed to be one of the most amazing collections. Yes, yes. Well, it, I, I, I couldn't say with authority who invented it, but uh, I know that the Egyptians widely used papyrus. Um, animal skins, anything and everything. So I, it, it wouldn't surprise me if there was, if there were scrolls available. Uh, I mean, you know, remember the Exodus, he left Egypt and they plundered Egypt on the way out. It wouldn't surprise me at all if Moses would have considered it valuable. Uh, we assumed that he was, even though he was a shepherd, that he was a learned man. Um, and in the, um, this, this last book, Deuteronomy, is a little different than the others because it starts off by saying, these are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan. So we, we kind of get the, the tone that it's at what point in Moses' life. Yeah. Yeah, very end. Where was he when he was beyond the Jordan? Right, but what is beyond the Jordan? Well, never got to go to Canaan. And if any of you uh, were with us our last trip to Israel, we went to Jordan. And Jordan is on the east side of the Jordan River from Israel. And so when they would have come out of Egypt, they would have come uh, across the southern part of the Negev into um, Jordan. They wouldn't have had to cross the Jordan River. Why? Because it dead ends into the Dead Sea. And they would have crossed south of the Dead Sea, circled back around, and then they came from east to west into uh, the, the promised land at Jericho. And that would have been looping around the Dead Sea, almost, uh, um, well, north of the Dead Sea, between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. That's where they would have crossed over 
uh, to get from Jordan into Jericho. So Mount Nebo, where uh, we went when we were there, um, that's where Moses died. And he, um, when we were there, um, you hardly ever get a crystal clear day in Israel. You hardly ever get the blue sky kind of day where you can see for miles and miles, but we did that day. And when we were on, um, out on Mount Nebo, we happened to have one of those crystal clear blue sky kind of days where we actually could see the same thing Moses saw. We could look into Israel from there uh, because of the elevation in the mountain and the, and the beautiful uh, weather. Um, so we, we, we think that probably he was nearing the end of his life when he wrote this. And it was, it was a, a second telling, a recap. Uh, he, he's going to go back to a lot of the things that he's already told us in Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. He's, he's going to circle back to some of the events that happened in Genesis. And so it's a, a second telling, and you, you almost pick up um, right away that it's, it's, a, um, it's a grandfather trying to uh, speak into the lives of a generation that maybe didn't experience all this. And so all of Deuteronomy is a retelling of things that we had seen before. Chapter uh, one talks about the rebellion in the wilderness. Chapter two talks about uh, the 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, then the, uh, the defeat of the foreign kings. Um, and then in uh, chapter four, he's uh, in Deuteronomy, he, he reminds the, uh, the people of their need for obedience. Uh, he maybe he remembers the Ten Commandments that he brought down from Sinai, and 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 as soon as he got to the bottom of the mountain, there was dancing and singing and carrying on, and and he broke the tablets only to have God uh, reinstate them later on. So maybe he was thinking about that in chapter four. He he talks a lot about, uh, and, and this is another thing that kind of makes me think maybe he was the having the grandfather talk. If you look at chapter 4, uh, verse 9, uh, take care, keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things your eyes have seen. So that lest you forget is kind of a theme throughout Deuteronomy, especially the first part. And then the other thing that was really important to Moses, he said, make these things known to your children and your children's children. How on the day you stood before the Lord, and the Lord said, gather the people so that I may let them hear my words. You make sure the kids know. You make sure that they understand what we're uh, doing here. And then in chapter uh, 5, he or chapter 4, verse 40, therefore you shall keep his statutes and his commandments, which I command you, that it may go well with you and your children. There's a, a legacy that's that's very important to Moses here. Then he rehearses the Ten Commandments again, and then he gets to chapter 6 and verse 4, which is probably the most famous verse in Deuteronomy. The great Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. Look at verse 7. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Many... Uh, Jewish people take this literally. Uh, when we go to Jerusalem, and especially when we go to the Western Wall, the Wailing Wall, we'll see uh, lots of people there who have, who have tied leather straps around their arms. 
and who wear the phylactery on their head, a little box with a, a band around the head, and in the box is scripture. And if anybody's ever brought you a gift back from Israel, they likely bought, brought you what's called a mezuzah or a mezuzah, which is a, a, a sort of a, a slim box that usually is nailed to the doorpost of your house. And inside the mezuzah is scripture, usually this scripture. And, uh, and so they, they took this quite literally that they would bind their arm, uh, put the scripture between their eyes and on the doorposts of their homes. But again, Moses said, make sure you talk to your children. Um, look at verse 20 of chapter six. When your son asks you in times to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies? So I, I, I circled in every Bible I've ever had the word when. When your children ask, why would they ask if they didn't have a visual of that going on, right? You know, my son's not going to ask me about something he doesn't know anything about. You know, he, my, my son has never asked me about rugby because I have never said that word in front of my son. Uh, he, he, they never asks us about the things that aren't important to us. They will ask us about what they see us valuing. And so when he says, when your son asks you, Joshua said the same thing uh, in chapter six of Joshua or chapter four of Joshua. When your son asks, what happened? Uh, what what were these teachings? Dad, why do you read your Bible? Mom, why do we go to church? Why do we pray? Why do we give money? Why do we serve in mission capacity? Why do we do these things? When your children ask, not if. It's not an if question if they catch us doing the things that God has told us to do. And so all of this leads to uh, chapter 8, which is really what I want to talk about on Sunday, because in all of these chapters that run up to it, he's been talking about um, the laws and the commandments and the practices and the sacrifices. And now in, in chapter 8, he's going to talk about prosperity, and he's going to talk about pride. Now, let me get a little feedback here. Does prosperity always bring about pride? No, but it certainly can contribute. So Gary said no, but it can contribute. Nancy said usually it does. What about out there in the online world? Is, is prosperity, does it always lead to pride? We got a lot of illustrations yeah, about illustrations. people that are wealthy and, and are a little bit ostentatious about it. I don't believe so. Jerome McCarley, I don't believe so. Well, Isaiah was a very wealthy man. Um, Elijah was a wealthy man. Um, Matthew, the tax collector, was a very wealthy man who didn't consider that to be something that he held on to. So what is it uh, that prevents prosperity from becoming private? Let's be a preacher. Remembering that, it, remembering that it's all from God to start with. Right, right, that it's all from God. And that in the same way with Fred, we were talking about we are we are grateful for chemotherapy and its impact on cancer. Grateful that that they have the technology to uh, do a PET scan and say this thing has shrunk and this thing has gone away. But lest we forget, lest we become prideful, we who are followers of Christ and worshipers of God, we we have to to keep always in mind. That it is he who gave us these gifts. 
And that's what chapter eight is all about. And so in chapter eight, he starts off uh, saying, the whole commandment that I command to you today, you shall be careful to do. All right, true confession. A lot of times when I study a passage of scripture, I'll read it all the way through quickly and then start going back and taking it apart. It took me a while before I kind of got what I think he was saying there. The whole commandments. You ever heard the, the phrase when a pastor starts talking about tithing and stewardship and offering and resources? What's somebody bound to say to a pastor? Now you're meddling. <laughs> now you're meddling. Now, now you're getting personal. Now, now you're starting to get into uh, a little bit of a touchy subject. And so it makes sense to me that Moses said, all right, I got to tell you the whole commandment. I got to tell you all of it. The part about teaching your sons, you're going, okay. The part about, you know, it, it's, it's real easy to follow a commandment that I'm not tempted to do. It's real easy to not do something that, that I'm not interested in or to do something that, that I can really see as beneficial with or without God. But when he tells me to do something that causes me a little bit of pain, that's when the whole commandment comes into play. And so he says, the whole commandment I command you, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to you to give to your forefathers. That's a good reminder before we dive into the rest of this chapter that none of this had happened. Okay? There, no cities of Canaan have been defeated. Jericho's walls are still intact. They, they, not a single Israelite has entered the promised land at this point. So, he is speaking of something that he claims in faith that will happen, and he describes it as though it has happened. Does that remind anybody of a verse? Maybe from Hebrews? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for the evidence of things not yet seen. The evidence of something not yet seen. I love courtroom shows on television. And if a lawyer ever said, I have evidence that you can't see, the judge is going to throw him out. But faith is the assurance, the, the, the bedrock certainty of something that is still in the future, hoped for and the evidence of something not yet seen. That's the that's the the the, the attitude that uh, that Moses has here. That, that you haven't seen this yet. You haven't experienced this yet. Some of you weren't even alive when God instituted this covenant. None of you were alive when God instituted this covenant. By now, almost all of that generation had died in the wilderness. And so he says, "This is a." This is a faith promise. This is something that you will see in your mind's eye. Um, we, we could go on. There, there are so many things that, that, that are evidence of that. Um, so four times he tells us to remember. Uh, verse 2, verse 18, uh, over in verse 9, I mean, chapter 9, verse 7 and 27. Uh, so, so four times in these chapters, he tells us not to forget, and four more times he tells us to remember. So a total of eight times, he either says, be sure you remember this, or be sure you don't forget. So he, he doesn't want us to forget our traditions and our history, the good and the bad. Um, as, as a pastor, I, I love the story of Dunwoody Baptistry. I love the story of Andrew Smith and Solomon Dallas and Denny Spear and Richard Harris as an interim pastor. Uh, I love 
the story of Jim Chavis and the, the time that he was uh, the pastor here. And I, I love the story of a, a, a group of people from First Baptist Church of Dunwoody marching up the street to what's now the library, singing Great is Thy Faithfulness while they constituted a brand new church. I love that, that God strategically placed us on the corner between the very border of commercial and residential, even though it was just farmland back. I love that we have 18 acres that cost us $48,000 in 1964. And, and I love that in 2018, we can put $11 million in the, in the coffers in order to uh, redo the plant that God gave us back then. I, I love the stories and I don't want to forget because in remembering those stories, I, I remember Richard in the student ministry here and to be able to be at this part of his journey and see what God has done and continues to do in his life. I love being a part of the story. And that's what Moses is saying. He's saying, don't read Deuteronomy and think it's boring. Read Deuteronomy and say, you get to retell these stories. When your kids ask, you tell them that your faith is living and vibrant. It's been tested. And I guess we better go ahead and get into that. So verse two, you shall remember the whole way that the Lord has led you these 40 years. Okay, let's 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 stop here in verse two because there are there are some things that um uh verse uh chapter eight verse two chapter eight verse two it says you shall remember the whole way that he might what humble you so the the first way he ingrains the stories for us is that he humbles us. Um, and I, I think about the humility through the wilderness and how they followed the pillar of fire by day, uh, night, and the cloud of smoke by day, and that they, they moved when God told them to move. They ate what God provided them to eat, and that he humbled them. And, and for me, humility is realizing that, that there are times that we have absolutely no control over the, the things that are going to happen in the future. That, that, that it's not just that we don't know, it's just that we can't affect it in any way. And that's where they were. Then he says uh, that you were, that he might, what? Test you. Uh, what's the difference between a test and a temptation? A test would turn into all right. You know, when I was a, a professor, uh, I was aware that I could always write a test that my students couldn't pass. I could choose obscure information that, that nobody with any common sense would have taken the time to study. And uh, a wiser professor once said, you can test students for what they know, or you can test them for what they don't know. I can either try to figure out what they don't know, or I can try to figure out what they do know. And what they do know should reflect what I've taught them. And so when God tests, he's reflecting what we do know, what he has taught us. The mysteries, the timetables, the genealogies, the when is Jesus going to come back? He's not testing us over what we can't know. He's testing us over what we do know, what he has already showed us. He has humbled us and he has tested us. Temptations come from the devil. Testing comes from God. So he says, I humbled you. I tested you to know what is in your heart. That's such an interesting phrase. One writer says, it's not that God doesn't know what's in our heart. It's that we don't know what's in our heart. And God reveals what he already knows is there through testing, through teaching. And so it's it's kind of interesting. In verse uh, uh, 1, he says, be careful to be obedient. I'm going to test you. In verse 2, it says he's going to humble us. In verse 3, it says he's going to teach us. He humbled you and let you hunger 
fed you with manna, which you did not know. You're going to learn something that you didn't know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know. So he humbles us, he tests us, he teaches us, all in helping us to get the stories, all in helping us not to look at God. You know, my, my challenge on the state of the church, the first time I did it, I bored you out of your minds with a litany of facts and figures, and here's the budget, and here's the numbers, and here's the square footage, and here's the tax code, and I don't know what all I said, but y'all were snoozing by the end of it. What I want to do is tell the stories. I, I want you to, to feel the backpacks that rattle against the glass of my office twice a day during carpet. I want you to, to see the kids carrying their lunches up to the dining room to have their sandwiches and their juice boxes. I, I want you to, to see the conversation club on Monday night where there are pockets, there are pairs of people all over the place. Uh, they, they, they've grown so much, they've spread out to this end. They used to just be in the lobby, uh, the new lobby with all the, the seating places. But now they're on benches and chairs and they're all over the place. And it's international people who are just wanting to practice their English. I want those stories to be known. So I, I, want, I want you to learn something you didn't know before. Uh, when Joshua brought the people into the promised land at Jericho, he said, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Stay uh, a healthy distance back from the priest because you haven't gone this way before. You've never seen this happen before. It didn't have anything to do with the, the, the drying up of the Jordan. They'd seen that at the Red Sea, but they had never seen God lead them into the place of promise. And so he humbles us. He tests us. He teaches us the things that we don't know. You see something else he does in chapter uh, 8, verse 5. He disciplines us. He disciplines us. What's the difference between the word discipline and punishment? Discipline is to teach you something. Punishment is just punishing you for what you did. As a, uh, Emily, she said uh, discipline is to teach us something. And punishment is just to uh, make you feel bad about something you did. As a parent, I looked at it this way. Punishment made me feel bad. <laughs> no, Discipline made my child feel bad. I heard someone say that um, punishment comes from anger. Discipline comes from love. Discipline has the same root word as disciple. And so the, 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 the disciple is the learner. And the function of discipline is learning. And, and that's, that's always a good barometer for parents. If I, if I punish my child out of anger, what are they learning? Anger. If I discipline my child out of love, what are they learning? Love. Now, it may still be a spanking, but my child is able to discern the motive of the parent, just as we can discern the motive of God. But uh, the, the, the scripture tells us a father disciplines uh, those that he loves. Can I jump in with something real quick? <clears throat> Uh, something that just struck me for the first time while reading this is that this audience that Moses is uh, addressing, they're likely only 20, 40 to 60 years old. Uh, many of them have probably never heard Moses even give the Ten Commandments because those uh, who wandered in the desert for 40 years, if I recall the scriptures correctly, uh, they were told that anybody over the age of 20 would not be allowed to enter the promised land. So you get the, the idea here that an entire generation of people have died off. And it might be the first time that some of these people are even hearing from Moses 
as they prepare to go into the, uh, across the Jordan. Most scholars think that the only the only people over 40 who entered the promised land were Joshua and Caleb. Um, Caleb, of course, was 85 um, when he said, give me the hill country. Um, but that's another Bible study for another night. But didn't God tell him you're not going into the promised land in this right He told Moses, you're not going into the promised land because I told you to speak to the rock and you struck it. So he told Moses not. He told he told Moses that nobody over the age of 40 was going into the promised land. He he said that that entire generation had to die off. And uh, and that's why they wandered around for 40 years. You know, Alan, this verse 4 too, I've never seen before. Your clothing did not wear out on you, nor did your feet swell these 40 years. What a reminder of his goodness to him. I'm reading about the people escaping uh, the drought. Um, in the early 1900s. Uh, Nancy said that she was drawn to verse 4 where it says that your clothing did not wear out nor did your shoes which was uh, uh, you know God had taught them he had disciplined them he had humbled them he had tested them but he also provided for them he gave them food. And that was a miracle. Yeah the, a miracle. the miracle of food yeah yeah I mean, I've got I'm walking all that way. You go well. Your sandals pretty done after a while. Well, uh, they were tired of eating manna too, and God gave them quail. Uh, you know, he, he we, we I, I appreciate really this perspective because you can't you can't isolate. Uh, there, there, there's inductive Bible study says there's always a main thing about a chapter. Okay, there's always a main thing about a book, but for us to understand when he gets to talking about our resources, when he talks about our contentment in the midst of prosperity and our perspective on who really owns it all, you kind of have to have the backdrop of they had it all, they lost it all, they gained it all, they lost it all, and now they're about to go into a place where he says, you don't have to bring anything with you. It's all there. It's an all-inclusive resort. You don't need to bring anything except the swimsuit because it's all there for you. And, and, and I think that's what he's trying to set up here. He's saying, you have been humbled, tested, taught, disciplined, provided for. You've had to, you, you've had to look to the sky for your food. You've had to look to the ground for your food. You, 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 there was nothing to eat in the desert. You didn't eat unless I provided it for you. There was no place to get materials for new clothing. So I told you that your clothing wouldn't wear out. And, and the, the miracle of that provision is what he is saying to them. Don't forget that. And, you know, those of us who are sitting in here in 2022, we're going, how could they forget that? But we're the same people that go, well, if I'd have walked around with Jesus for three years, I can assure you that I wouldn't have doubted him. I wouldn't have denied him. I wouldn't have fled at the cross. And we all know better, don't we? We forget because we are forgetters. So now we're ready for the passage that I'm going to deal with on Sunday. <laughs> so everything we've done for the last 40 minutes Nobody on Sunday is going to get that. He now says in verse 6, So keep the commandments and walk in his ways. The, the word so there is a, is a really strong connector. So the things that I've been saying for seven and a half chapters. So keep the commandments of the Lord. Walk in his ways. Fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land. A land of brooks, of water, of fountains and springs flowing in the valleys and hills. A land of wheat and barley, of vines and figs and pomegranates, of olive trees 
and honey, a land where you will eat bread without scarcity. These people have been eating something that's somewhere between rice and oatmeal called manna. And they've been doing that for four decades. Some their whole life. Some of them never eaten anything else. And now he, their mouth is watering. You know, I, I don't know if any of you remember uh, those of you who are of a certain age when you got to my age and, and started approaching your 65th birthday and you were buried with all the Medicare dinners that you were getting invited to. Like all the people that want to buy my dinner and explain Medicare programs to me. I got two on the same day, one from Fleming's and one from Golden Corral. <laughs> I'm going, do I want to go to Fleming's and eat good steak or do I want to go to Golden Corral? They got a chocolate fountain. So, you know, it, it, I can only imagine these people's mouths were just watering over these descriptions of the good things that are going to be there. Land of milk and honey. But you know what I think was probably even better for them? Oh. Oh. We're, we're, we're not wandering anymore. We're going to put down some roots. We're going to we're going to have security. We're going to have peace. We're going to have prosperity. That's going to be hard getting there. But I I wonder if that was in there, and I don't think they ever had peace. No, they never have. Uh, but he told them that too. There's something that's really interesting here. That's uh, very specific. Verse nine: a land where in which you can eat bread without scarcity, where you will lack nothing. These stones are iron. Now this is pre-ironing, so the, the they don't they don't have smelting yet. They're just saying, I'm, I'm going to give you rocks that you can use for tools. And then he says, and uh, out of the hills, you can dig copper. Uh, there was abundant copper in the south of Israel. Uh, of course, most of it's been mined over the years. But it's interesting that God was that specific through Moses. They had never been in the promised land. They had never been in Canaan. And yet he says there's copper there. And in the Aqaba uh, region, there's uh, abundant copper mines. Um, right on the heels of it. So then verse 11. Take care lest you forget. He said that a bunch. But here he's going to say it in relation to everything he has just described. What if I said to Dunwoody? You are in abundance. You have houses that are worth more than you can imagine. You have cars that you can drive. You have stocks and bonds and savings and lake houses and vacation plans and the ability to buy an airline ticket to go where you want to go and to know that when you turn the light switch on, the, the, the power is there, the air conditioning is there, the refrigerator is full. Dunwoody, Georgia, you are living in abundance. Now, that's, that's what he says. All of these things, if you were in the, that, the 1,400 years before Christ, describe where you live. Oh, streams of water, lush fruit trees, pomegranates, figs, uh, uh, farmland, wheat, barley, honey, olive oil. Somebody would say, you're rich. You're, you're rich. You, they were rich, and we are rich. But he says, take care lest you forget by not keeping commandments and statutes, which I command you. And then verse 12 is sort of the, the central verse of the whole passage. Lest when you have eaten, and are full, and have built houses and live in them. Your herds and flocks have multiplied, your silver and gold is multiplied, and all that you have is multiplied. I'm listening to this. If I'm a somebody who's been wandering in the desert, I'm going, you had me at multiplied. 
Man, you 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 got me right there at multiplied. I, I think I heard gold and silver. I I think I heard flocks and herd, but you use the word multiplied. What a what a great word. Uh, you, you know, multiplied exponentially uh, return on investment. He said, "Don't forget when your heart is lifted up." And you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Why do we talk about tithing in church? Tithing is the word that uh, comes from Leviticus that indicates a tenth of all that God has given us. We give back to him. Uh, it's never really commanded. It's, it's always a response. It's never a command. Uh, the first time we know of tithing, Abraham gave a tenth of his uh, spoils to the king of Salem, uh, Jerusalem. He, uh, the Melchizedek, the king of Jerusalem. Uh, Abraham, out of uh, out of gratitude, gave him a tenth of everything that he had accumulated. It's it's, it's never a command; it's always a response. Um, Malachi three ten: Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. That sounds like a command. But it's it's a response. And so then, then your heart would be lifted up. You forget the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, who, who gave you all of this stuff, who fed you in the wilderness, verse 16. Your fathers, uh, that he might humble you and test you to be, do you good in the end. Verse 17, beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand is gotten. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. I like the way it says that. I'm an American. I believe in work. He says, he didn't say he's going to give us wealth. He says he's going to give us the strength to work. He's going to give us the power to uh, engineer. Uh, he's going to give us the creativity to invent. He's going to give us the power to get wealth, why that he may confirm a covenant. So we kind of end where we started. I made a covenant with Abraham back in Genesis chapter six. I confirmed that covenant with Moses on Mount Sinai after he led you out of slavery in Egypt. You wandered across the desert. And now I'm confirming the covenant once again because you are about to be in a place of prosperity. Don't forget to respond to that with your offerings, with your worship, with your stewardship, with your resources. Is he telling us to tithe? Not really. Is he telling us to give? Do we, do we carry on that old cheesy TV slogan, you can't outgive God? Well, that's very true, but that's not really what tithes and offerings are about. They are a response. So let me give you my list and, and we'll be done. That he may establish his covenant. How do we live in that covenant? When we remember his word. Moses said, don't forget the things I've said. Don't forget the stories. Don't forget the commandments. Hear, O Israel. The Lord our God is one. Number two, agree that God alone can satisfy. God alone can satisfy. The thing about rich people is that most want to be more rich. It's it's the, the contentment. Um, what is it that the scripture, Jennifer, uh, uh, godliness with contentment is great gain or, or uh, prosperity with contentment is great gain. That, uh, that the, the difference between prosperity that leads to pride and prosperity that leads to honoring the covenant is contentment. But if we are left alone, we will seek our own welfare, but only God can satisfy three he said, pray for God's presence and acknowledge 
that that may involve testing, teaching, humility, discipline. Pray for God's presence, his, his wisdom, his discernment, his direction. Then practice what he teaches you. Practice what he teaches you. And in parentheses on my notes, I wrote, and let your kids catch you. Let your kids catch you doing good. Let your neighbors catch you doing good. Why do you do that? Why do you give to that organization? Why do you keep a snack bag in your car to give to the guy at the end of the interstate? Teach by example. Well, uh, that's imitation is the is the purest form of teaching. You know how so many of us do something because our we saw our mom or dad do it. We we have a particular way we tie a necktie. Or we have a, a particular way we mow the grass. Um, I've told this story before. My dad was an over-the-road truck driver for a while. And uh, when I learned to drive, it was like a cardinal sin with my dad that you would use your left foot for anything if there was no clutch in the car. If the car didn't have a clutch, you don't need your left foot. And, uh, and so if I would try to drive with a foot on the gas and a foot on the brake, that was like dad's going apoplectic in the passenger seat because all he ever knew was shifted gears. And, and so in his mind, the only way to drive is with a right foot if you've got an automatic transmission. And I get it. I, I, I do that because I watched my dad. When I'm on the interstate, and there's a, a car on the shoulder of the road, I changed lanes. Why? Because my dad did that in an over-the-road truck, and I never saw him doing this. And, and there are things we do, not because we consciously learn them, but that we saw somebody doing it. If our children see us being generous, they're going to learn generosity. If our kids see us being selfish, they're going to learn selfish. Now, there's no guarantee with kids. You know, there's no there's no surety over how they'll turn out. But the promise that God gives us is that we train them up in the way they should go when they're old, they won't depart from. And I am still trying to figure out how old that is with mine. But, um, we 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 are caught doing good. All right. Um I think that'll do it. Any uh, questions or comments, thoughts? I'll talk a lot about money on Sunday morning, but I'll talk a whole lot more about uh, the relationship that is behind our tithes and our offerings.